Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. These are listener questions, but they all have to do with card shows. I'm actually at the card show today. I'm supposing, because I'm recording this in advance, because I'll be 9 to 8 at the uh, Waters Creek show that Kyle Robertson has, having a good time there. So I'm not taking time out. Thanks, sponsors. Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins & Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. All these are listener questions or comments that have come in. Uh, I'll give attribution where I can, but some of them are anonymous or maybe I forgot. Somebody asked me something at a card show and I jotted something down to deal with it. Uh, like I said, I'm at the show today, so it's appropriate that I do listener questions that have to do with the card show circuit. First one, anonymous, and other people have had this, but uh, just be aware that at a card show, not everything is visible on top of the table. I don't think it upsets dealers to ask them, do you have anything else that's not shown? If you're looking for something obscure, they may have all baseball in their showcases. It's possible they have other sports or non-sport underneath. If you ask politely and nicely, hopefully that's not uh, too much trouble for somebody, or it'd be better if they had a sign. Here's some other things I have that are not available. The dealer proximity discussion that's been ongoing about putting all the vintage dealers together and all the TCG dealers together at big shows. I guess at a smaller show, you don't worry about it too much, but at a bigger show, you have trouble getting around. Be nice to know. Again, everything's on top of the table. If you think of it that way, then you can get a pretty quick glance of what's what. But uh, I like the idea, and this is already happening at the National. There are clusters of dealers that have similar material. I'm thinking mainly vintage, but in, the, in many cases, these are lifetime friends, a uh, high level of trust. They can cover for each other, and they really enjoy being uh, next to each other, and it builds some strength or an island or a cons an opportunity. When you get in that area, you're seeing some dealers that have similar material, and you could camp out there. Now, that's not all good. If you're trying to sell cards to somebody, then you uh, go to the first dealer, the vintage dealer, with your vintage cards. You say, I'm trying to get whatever money for this. And you, the adjacent dealer can hear whether you're driving a tough bargain or you're selling too cheap, whatever. As a dealer, when I did that, you just have to keep your mouth shut, wait your turn. If they go to somebody else first, then when they get done with that, you maybe overheard where they left off. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. You're hearing deal flow. And if the person's a jerk, you're going to know that uh, it's unlikely you'll have a deal with that person. And the proximity helps you as a dealer. Let's see. I hear a lot about price bounties and I hear a lot about comps, but I don't hear that much about price matching. If you were a vintage dealer, for example, or any kind of, I guess the unopened boxes and cases guys pretty much do price matching, but to explicitly do price matching with vintage and to declare that, again, the problem is I appeal. If it's equivalent grade, but not equivalent I appeal, that's not a comparable deal. And you can't say, I'll match his price what he has for a weak eight for my strong eight that I have. That's just not fair. So it's difficult, but uh, we will see. And we'll see what happens with the uh, mascot. If you've been tracking mascot and what they're doing at some of the bigger shows in terms of helping dealer graded inventory be posted, so attendees can see what's what. Another problem with the dealer proximity is I, I had a situation where I told somebody I was going to be at a certain table certain area. In fact, it was the singles club and I was actually not there. 
And it was much to my chagrin or their chagrin that I was about 30 feet away at a similar table at a quasi-competitor. There's enough cards for everybody, but I was over there and I just felt like somebody had egg on their face and maybe it was me. I have uh, my loyalties, but I don't have exclusives. Again, in the vintage, if you're in a vintage area or a wax area, people can see that you're there and they perhaps make assumptions. Got an interesting comment from uh, John Keating. I like his thinking usually. (laughs) And he says, I admire the grazers. They never go home hungry. I often leave the field with my bow and arrow and an empty stomach. That's hunters and grazers. And I'm looking for something interesting. And I've almost, like John, I almost never go home hungry because I'm not looking for one big thing or a few big things. That would be really disappointment if I came home empty. I tell Diane every time I go, maybe this time I'll come back empty. But I usually come up with a nice box of cards that I have fun with. One other point is I didn't do a tribute to uh, Steve Riferson or to Ted Zanadakis. I probably could more so with Ted, but other people have done that. I knew Ted. My point on this is uh, these are great guys, certainly worthy of a tribute, and I knew Ted way better, but I mainly knew him from shows. That's the point. I don't think I'm super sociable, but over the course of several decades of dealing with these great guys, you do build some rapport. And Ted was one of the uh, very helpful, not just to me, but to everybody. So again, very worthy of a tribute. Got a comment from somebody about, am I going to go to Culture Collision in Atlanta? And if I do, would I go see Jeff Wilson's store? And I said, yes, I would do that. And I also would go to Joe Davis' store. That's exactly what I used to do back in the day. If you turn the clock back 30 or 40 years, probably... Yeah, 30 or 40 years, especially almost 40 years ago in the 80s, I would go to uh, a big show. Sometimes there'd be a little show nearby, but frequently there were really cool stores that I would pop in on. So it was a a really full service trip. And I would do that if I was in Atlanta. Don't have plans to do that immediately. A comment from Andrew asking about Gary Carter. Gary Carter is his guy. And are you aware of any card shows where the format is designed around player collectors. There's some hope that Mascot or some other digital solution will will appear where you can know if you're at a show. Now, at the National, there are a couple of dealers. There are several that are organized by team, and there are a few that are organized by player. It's difficult. I, I sort my cards by player. It takes a long time, Andrew. But the huge show, you probably will see that. You're likely going to pay extra if they've already done the work. So that's the way I look at it. That's why I like the dollar boxes. They didn't do a lot of work, so they don't have to mark the price up because of their uh, sorting cost. I've got several questions and comments from Stuk up in Dakota. I don't know if you North Dakota. I get mixed up with North Dakota or South Dakota. They're both way up there. But he uh, was mentioning he's down in Dallas every once in a while, and maybe it's in the winter. He notes there aren't as many shows in Dallas other than the big shows. It's really tough because it's not that people want to go to a show every week. If you have one show that's so big, that's got such great selection and really good price, great camaraderie, very convenient, little hassle, you know the drill, then I don't know if you have budgetary concerns, but most of your good shopping is going to be done at that big show. And then the next week, you might be tapped out. So I think that's part of it, Stooks. Uh, Another from Stooks, he said he had had done uh, shows back in the 80s and promoted, and uh, the guy's just like I, I knew the same thing. He, he said he met some guys that become lifelong friends. When you're at a smaller show like that and everybody's thrown in the same area there, it's pretty cool. You spend a lot of time. Uh, they used to have hospitality rooms, and that was great. And he said he even got Mr. Mint to come up there occasionally, and that was great. He points out first-time dealers are a lot of fun. 
because they have stuff that isn't picked over. He mentions Mr. Mint being very uh, meticulous and careful, being a high-profile guy to uh, make sure he was uh, squared away with U.S. Customs and Canadian Customs. Me, same thing. That'll be my heartburn for going up to uh, Canada next time. Although, if you just dot every I and cross every T, you can still do that. Stukes also mentions that if he needs a fix between the the Dallas card shows, he can go to the huge flea market in Canton, and there's a number of antique malls. Uh, that has not been fruitful for me lately. I Pre-COVID, I, I had better luck with some estate sales, if you get there early and check. But uh, I haven't been out to Canton for a long time. I just think other people hit that circuit, and it's a two-hour drive each way. I don't know that I'd go to Kyle's show if it was, if it was in Oklahoma City. I, I probably would, now that I know it's good. But I'm 20 or 25 minutes away. That's much better. Another one from Stooks talking about not just shows, because he's up in Fargo. He They organized a kind of a club that met monthly. And the club is not trade night, but there's a great opportunity. If you had a monthly club meeting, which we did have back in Dallas almost 50 years ago now, it's trade time. You can buy and sell, but it's really cool if you're with some people that you see each month and you know them, you like them, you know what they're looking for. You might not have it this time, but you can bring it the next time. Not much was going digital in those days. It was either in the mail or in person. And in person was a lot more fun. Here, Stukes, that hats off to anybody that sets up a club because I think the personal touch is really cool. And then finally from Baba Feet talking about his lesson that he learned in the 80s when he had an interaction with Mr. Mint, Alan Rosen, that was my good friend for a long time and then not so much toward the end. And I'm sad about that, but already dealt with that in an episode. But he had his baseball card in one hand and a $100 bill in the other. He had his $100 bills fanned out on in his showcase. He said, kid, this thing's a piece of cardboard and this is money, real money. Again, that's the definition of a true collector. Would you rather have the money or you'd rather have the card? And Alan was not an accidental success. I think he really had uh, a level of skill in his um, hype and his ability to be be on and full speed ahead. And so he played into that. He knew that many of the people in the hobby were, as Baba Feet says, nostalgia addicts like his dad. And Alan Rosen could play into that. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Somebody was going to do it. He just did it better than a lot of people. His last point is that that was a harbinger of the death of baseball cards as a working class hobby. Well, first of all, it's uh, probably more than a hobby now. So if you mean not the death of the hobby, but uh, it's become more of an industry. And he said, now it's a tax dodge for rich people. Yes and no. The main thing it is for rich people is bragging rights. That you've got something cool that is not easily obtained when you have some of these nice cards that are uh, valuable and scarce. But the tax dodge, the tax angles that the rich people do on uh, cards, one is you get like capital gains treatment. If you buy something for a hundred bucks and you uh, sell it uh, 20 years later for $10,000, whatever you got, you didn't have to pay tax along the way. You pay tax when you sell something and the IRS is going to presume that you paid a penny for it if you don't have uh, proof, but you get the run up in value and you defer the taxes. So that's a tax dodge of sorts. It's a, when you pay, you're eventually going to pay, but you don't have to pay until you sell something. That's assuming you're going to declare that you are selling something. And if you don't, most of the rich people I know, and rich is a relative term, they don't mess around with their taxes in the sense they don't want to go to jail. You can take a position and do something, but if you do something that's fraudulent, you can not just pay a fine, but you could go to jail, especially if you do it consistently. And the, the other thing, the other tax, not a tax dodge, but now I guess this maybe is a tax dodge. Again, you can't deduct your losses for a hobby, but you can deduct your losses for a business. And in the last couple of years, we've seen some 
formerly rich people who have bought cards at a high price and then only to what we can see is in a public auction. They're then selling their card a year later and they're selling it for a substantial haircut. It's not a tax dodge if it's a hobby. You can't deduct hobby losses, but you can deduct business losses. And many people that are rich are pretty savvy about money. That's not a fun tax dodge to have losses. <laughs> you had the loss. So did you get a write-off for it? Yeah, but you still had the loss. So anyway, that's just some listener questions about card shows. I'm there today. I always have a good time. There's always redeeming value. Even if I came back with nothing, I still have a good time. I don't like looking at cards without the chance to buy something, which is what I did for many decades. That was necessary because that's the job I had. But now I get to go and I can pick out some stuff and see some more friends. Hit a card show. There's a bunch of them out there and it seems like there's some more and they're getting better and better. So thanks everybody. Be back in a couple of days with another episode. The man